0: Jeff. So um, it's strange being here because actually I was supposed to be in Israel at this time but we all know what happened and then we all know what happened and now we all know what has happened so here I am and uh, of course it's beautiful to be back in this beautiful building sad of course that it is empty save for myself and uh, Jeff and some support staff here uh, but I'm glad that you're here to share this moment with us it, uh, it occurred to me When I was sitting at the seder for the first night, realizing, at least physically, all the people who weren't there, um, exactly what the experience of the seder was meant to be. And so it actually came to me at the very beginning of the seder, a part that I know that you're all very familiar with. At the very beginning of the seder, after the four questions, we read this remarkable narrative of Rabban Gamliel. Uh, who we are told that he says, It is like I am someone who is 70 years old. Rabbinic tradition goes on to tell us that Rabban Gamaliel was not actually 70 years old. We know his real story. Rabban Gamaliel's real story was is that he was 18 years old. And he was just appointed as the Nasi, the president of the great rabbinic court in Jerusalem, known as the Sanhedrin. And the night before his installment, his formal induction into the office, Rabban Gamaliel went to bed that night terrified. And what was he afraid of? He was afraid, keenly aware, that how hard it would be for him, irregardless of whatever scholastic acuity he had developed in his life, and he had tremendous intellectual abilities and it didn't make a difference, he was terrified, then no matter how much wisdom or insight he may have had into life, because he knew in his heart that no matter how much knowledge he had attained or how much wisdom he was balancing in his young heart, that people wouldn't respect him because he looked so young. And So the legend goes on to say that that night, in that fitful sleep, with the fear of wondering if he could fill the office that he was being drawn into. The next morning he woke up and he looked in the mirror and he saw that all of his hair, his beard, and hair on his head had all turned white. And he realized that a miracle had occurred. And the miracle was, is that his outside looked like his inside, that the old soul what we call in Yiddish the Cup, the old soul that he carried in himself, people now could see. Now there are many examples of this. Interestingly enough when you look at uh, Renaissance art or medieval art when they depict young children, they never look like children actually. They look like full adults. You could have a child standing next to an adult and the adult is larger The child, by scale, is smaller, but they're wearing all the exact clothes, and if you look at the child's face, it's actually indistinguishable from an adult face. They just look smaller. In other words, that the ideal was, was to be an adult, and that was the purpose of life. For you to get as quickly as possible to adulthood. Now, in my own life, and I know for you too, I've experienced the same thing. I've been a community, synagogue, pulpit rabbi since I was 26 years old. I'm now 53. And I realized early on in my career, the very same challenge that Rabban Gamliel had, and also of the little children that were painted in those medieval and Renaissance art images. I realized that in order for me to be taken seriously, for my words to have weight, people would have to believe that I was a lot older than I looked. And so I guess the question I wanted to share with you this morning, the question that came to me on the first night of Passover, as our small and very limited family was surrounding me, of course I was connected with many hundreds of others at my Zoom seder, the question that came to me was, what's the greater ideal? Is it to be an adult or is it to be a child? The question actually is said in a funny way. Uh, My colleague Rabbi Harold Kushner, famous for writing the book, When bad things happen to good people, he told me the story. He had gotten a new computer, and he was trying to figure out how to use a USB drive. You know, the little thumb drive that you put into the computer, because his daughter wanted a file that he had. And first he said, you know what, I'll burn a CD for you, and I'll send it in the mail. And she said, no, no, Dad, just use a USB. He didn't know how to do it. So what does he end up resorting to? he ends up resorting to calling up his grandson, all of 12 years old, who comes over to his house and he does the thumb drive transfer for the file and brings it home to his mother, to Rabbi Kushner's daughter. And he realized at that moment that a world for so long that had been built upon where the elder, the older, the person who was sage and wise and weathered and worn that this person would be the one who would guide and lead and support to where the world needs to be and instruct the young and where they should go, that that world was now reversed because he didn't know how to do it, and he wasn't alone. He was part of an entire generation of people who surrendered themselves to the advance of technology, and we needed our children, or in his case, our grandchildren, to guide our way out. I think that there's a different answer in this. The entire story of Passover has a particular message to it. You remember of course that the story of Passover begins, the real story of Passover begins when Pharaoh declares that the Israelite children are to be murdered. Young baby Moses is spared of course, he's placed into a basket and sent down the Nile River by his mother and sister. But he was only but one. Almost all of his contemporaries, they were murdered, thrown into the Nile River at the hands of the Egyptians. So much so that we know that the Egyptians placed monitors that would follow the Israelite women as they were pregnant in order to perfectly time that they would meet them in their ninth month so they couldn't evade detection. The first plague that the Egyptians face is the plague of Dam, of blood, where all the blood, all excuse me, all the water that the Egyptians drank from all turned to blood. We know that all of the water that the Egyptians drank from, all of the water that they irrigated from, we know that all the water that they drew from to give to their animals or to bathe from, it all came from one source. It came from the source of the Nile. And so the very first plague was the plague of the water of the Nile turning into blood. After that first plague, one might think that Pharaoh would have relented. But he might have come to realize what the symbolism, the great symbolism was. It was the symbolism of him seeing his crime being visited on himself and his people. That this nation and this man who had directed his people in the horrible crime of infanticide, of throwing children to drown in the Nile, and that very Nile then turns to blood when he drinks it. It may have occurred to him at that time that there was going to be a payment demanded for what he had done that the recrimination was coming to his doorstep and there would be no escaping justice. But Pharaoh doesn't hear that. He ignores it. He's too blind. And all of his people are infected with his blindness too. And then the 10th and final plague is the plague of the firstborn where the firstborn children of the Egyptians are killed. And in particular, we know because the text tells us that Pharaoh's son dies and he lets out a wail, the text tells us, that is heard all throughout Egypt. And only when it touches him, only when he loses, only when it's taken from him does he realize the symmetry of the moment the crime that he began with the crime of killing the children of the Egyptians the first plague a hint a sign that the blood that was in the river of those children were coming out at him finally culminates in the final plague of his child being taken from him and then and only then does Pharaoh say go and the Israelites So what's more important, the elderly or the young, the parents or the children? And it seems to me that we look at the Seder table and we realize what the true answer is. The true answer is is found in the final cup that's on the Seder table. It is the cup of Eliyahu and Elijah the prophet. Elijah, we are told by the prophet Malachi, will come and bring a time when the hearts of the parents turn to their children and the hearts of the children turn to their parents. In this world, in order to succeed, we need both. We need the people, our parents, and our grandparents to provide strength and sustenance, inspiration and power to those who will come after us. We have to build the institutions, maintain the synagogues, keep our schools strong because they can't do it for themselves. We have to book the bar mitzvahs and the bat mitzvahs. We have to plan the baby names and the brit milah. We have to do all those things for them. But we're paving the way for them to come and guide our hearts, to give us strength to understand that when we invest in these things, they are not for naught, nor are they futile. It's building the future. In moments like we're living in now, Our presence seems so difficult to dark. The Seder reminds us to turn our hearts to the future. We look at the children, maybe that weren't physically at our table, but hopefully you saw them on Zoom or on FaceTime. And you realize that we hold on to this, not only because it strengthens us, but because it builds them up. Great European rabbi who lived 150 years ago, the Alto Slobodka famously said a child that loses its mother and father is called an orphan. But a nation that has no children is an orphan. We as a people are blessed greatly with beautiful children, strong parents and grandparents, adults who together will move from this moment and build a beautiful tomorrow. Fuck som some